Welcome to Inside the Labyrinth Podcast. This is one of your co-hosts speaking, Frank. I am an active New York City police officer, and I'm part of Reps for Responders. I've had the honor and privilege to journey through the labyrinth with my other host, Jay, the real Jumpman Jay on Instagram. He's a veteran officer and also part of the SWAT team in one of the cities in New York. We would just like to thank you for journeying through the labyrinth with some of the great guests that we have had on the show so far. We will continue to make episodes with all the positive feedback that we have received. If anyone has any idea, topic, or anyone we would like to interview, please email us at repsforresponders at gmail.com. Reps for Responders is a nonprofit out of Rockland County, New York. We provide free open gym for all active, retired, and volunteer first responders, military, and veteran. Reps for Responders also has a weekly Zoom meeting, which is a support group every Sunday at 7 p.m. to let first responders and military let off steam or talk about anything that they want to talk about, positive, negative, or anything they're struggling with. Reps for Responders has five certified recovery coaches through New York State to help battle addiction and alcoholism. If anyone is struggling, please don't be afraid to reach out to Reps for Responders. You can find us on Instagram at reps underscore four underscore responders or visit our website at repsforresponders.org. Again, from myself and Jay, personally, we thank you. As a recovering alcoholic, I would like to personally thank you because you have kept me sober just for today. All in and have a great day. Jay, we're back, man, already. Yeah, we are here. We are back. We are back. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to, to Inside, Inside the Labyrinth, people. Season two. I just want to thank for everyone who was listening to season one. We had seven episodes, and that will be released um, very shortly. So thank you very much. Season two, uh, we're about to kick it off with a great guest. Before I introduce him, I'm very excited. Today is going to be very real. I've had the honor and the pleasure to meet him in real life. And uh, he's just a true inspiration and a lot of knowledge. So I can't wait. It's going to to get very, very, as always, my man, Jay. How's it going, guys? Welcome back to Inside the Labyrinth Podcast. Here are my boy, Frankie V. And we have an illustrious guest on today. I'm pretty sure most of you guys have watched uh, Bigger, Stronger, Faster. Um, And... uh, you know, I uh, when Frankie said that we were gonna have a uh, this man on the show, I was like, no way. Uh, I, I I don't think we're gonna get him, but Frankie always manages to pull strings and makes things happen. So, go ahead, Frankie. Let's introduce our guest. All right. So for season two, episode one, I want to invite Chris Bell. Chris, man, how you doing today? I'm doing great, man. How you guys doing? Doing well, man. Doing well. Doing good, man. Just holding down. It's been a crappy weather here in New York, and it sucks. <laughs> yeah, you guys are uh, all locked down and crappy weather. It's like 90 degrees out here right now, so we've been lucky in California, you know. But you can't really go outside, so it's not really that great, you know. Yeah, so I think it sucks across the board, but at least you guys got good weather, you know. Yeah. Now, Chris, how is it now, California? Well, how's Sacramento over there? 
yeah, everything's on lockdown. It's uh, at least until the 15th. And then after the 15th, they're just going to see what happens and then go from there. You know, I just basically follow the rules. I don't think, I think the thing is way overblown, but you know, whatever, I'm not a health expert. I just stay inside and, and listen for now. You know, I'm not one of the people out there revolting. Still want to do what I'm <laughs> supposed to, you know? Right. Well, I want to hit, I'm going to hit your opinion on that and the mindset later on in the show, Chris, but, um, just to give a little bit of background of who you are um, and dig into your labyrinth a little bit, man, your brain, uh, sure. wh- where you live now, uh, how old you are, what do you do for a living, and uh, how was life a little bit growing up, and where did you grow up? Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York, upstate New York. Um, you know, I'm a filmmaker. I went, um, I moved when I was 19, when I was 19 years old, I moved to California to go from uh, community college, which I was, uh, I didn't have good grades in high school. You know, I never really had any ambition in high school or didn't really have anything I wanted to do with my life. And then I went to a community college and started taking like a communications class and did really well in it. I just excelled in it. And I started making um, music videos for my friends that were rappers. And next thing you know, my music video won a national contest that Francis Ford Coppola judged. I got flown to California. Wow. One thing led to another. I ended up at USC Film School, which is like literally like them and NYU are probably the best film schools in the, in the entire world. Yeah, very and um, I went to uh, USC Film School and graduated from there. Uh, and then even even in going to USC Film School, it's like you realize really quick who the directors are going to be. You know, I went to school with like Richard Kelly, who did Donnie Darko. I went to school with my buddy Rick Famuyiwa, who is a... Mm. Um, Afri- African-American filmmaker who has kicked some major ass and been able to get himself all the way up to directing an episode of the man, couple episodes of the Mandalorian, you know? So, wow. um, I've been to school with some pretty successful people, but you could tell real quick, like who were going to be the leaders and who were going to be the directors, you know, out of that group. And I think like right away, I kind of stood out. I was a power lifter, you know, um, right away when I went to school, the very first day of film school was the day after a powerlifting meet where I squatted like 650. Yeah. And so my, my face was completely blown out. My eyes were bloodshot the first day of class. And people were like, who the hell is this guy coming in? And I said to everybody like, Hey, just uh, relax. I had a, I, I don't normally look like this. I had a powerlifting competition. I blew out my face and like right off the bat, everybody just started laughing at me, you know, like, they're like, this guy's crazy. And, um, you know, the very first day in film school, they ask you, like, what your favorite movie is and why. And they're going around the class and people are saying, oh, Fellini's Eight and a Half or Citizen Kane or Casablanca. And they get to me and I say Rocky. And again, everybody, like, laughs, you know. <laughs> I'm like, well, hey, don't laugh. Rocky won an Academy Award. Oh, it was yeah. one best picture. You know, uh, it's an awesome movie. And that's what really inspired me to, you know, want to make films and, and want to do stuff like that. And in the beginning, I, I wanted to be like everybody else and, you know, make Arnold movies and blow shit up. And, you know, that was my goal. And um, I don't know, later on down the road, I just became a lot more tuned into what was really going on out there. And when you get tuned in, it's hard to not make things like documentaries that tell the real, the real truth behind stuff. You know, I was so kind of um, angry with all the stuff going on about, you know, like in 2004, all these things started springing up about steroids and all these politicians are starting to argue on TV about steroids and baseball. And like, man, these guys don't know what they're talking about, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And sort of dove into that world. Actually, 
I thought like what they were doing in a way was good because I thought like, oh, okay, like people shouldn't be taking steroids. They're probably really bad for people. Let me look into this. And that's when I started looking into steroids and started making my film Bigger, Stronger, Faster. It was just basically out of like what I saw in the world. I'm like, look, I look up to all these people, Arnold, Stallone, you know, Hulk Hogan, like, are they really bad people? You know? Yeah. And that's what I kind of wanted to examine in, in that film, you know? So I'm sort of, sort of like everything, everything in my life has been a culmination towards me making these movies, which has been like really kind of bizarre in a way. Like it hasn't been a normal, a normal path, you know, like every movie comes out of like something that happened to me, you know? So I did the first film I did was, um, was bigger, stronger, faster. The second film I did was a film I did with uh, Peter Berg, who's a really great director. Um, he's done a ton of movies, you know, uh, Friday Night Lights, and he's done um, Hancock and all these movies mm -hmm. over the years. And um, I did this movie, Trophy Kid, with Peter Berg, and that was about obsessive sports parents, but that's because my best friend was a basketball coach and he was getting abused by the parents <laughs> that were, you know, were the parents of the kids on his team. And so I decided to make a movie about obsessive sports parents just because I was in that world with my best friend. And then after that, um, you know, right after Bigger, Stronger, Faster, I, I needed a double hip replacement surgery. So I had a double hip replacement surgery due to genetic arthritis. I'd always been into powerlifting, but then powerlifting kind of got taken away from me. Mm -hmm. So that really was like sad and it sucked. And, um, you know, I basically just took the pills that the doctors told me to take. And after a while, next thing you know, I'm a full-blown drug addict. And then I realized that you could drink along with pills and that would get you doubly as high and um, started doing that. And then even made a recovery from that and then went and made a movie called Prescription Thugs. That was what, you know, 20, and then beyond, 2015, right? Yeah, and then beyond, and that went to Tribeca Film Festival there yeah, in New York, yeah. which was great. Mm -hmm. I had everybody... I had, you know, all these people there um, that, you know, my family's from New York. So I had like, I think the theater held like 400 people and it was just packed and it was like a lot of people that I knew. So that was really a cool experience because I was sober then. Um, and I got sober. Probably one of the greatest feelings. Yeah. Like, and I, that was I got, one of the greatest feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Just like, just everybody knowing that you're okay. One of the best feelings I've actually ever had was, um, you know, when I was making the movie Trophy Kids, I was in the middle of alcoholism and drug addiction. And uh, Peter Berg actually came to me, and he's a guy I really respect. You know, he's done a, a ton of movies, he's got a huge production company. And he said, I don't know what's wrong with you, but like, you got a problem. Like, something's going on with you. And like, I, I just knew right then, like, man, this guy knows. I, like, he found out. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. he's no, he's no spring chicken. He's been around addicts before. Like, he knows something's up. And so when he talked to me, um, I just was like so ashamed and I really didn't talk to him much after that. And we had just made a movie together, you know? And so yeah. I was like, really kind of like that weighed on me a lot because he's somebody I really respected. But I went to, um, UFC, one of the UFC fights with, uh, it was Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz, the second fight. Okay. And when I went there, I was like, you know, a year sober and, or more than a year sober, maybe like two years sober at that point. And I hadn't seen Pete in like two years. And so finally I saw him at that fight and um we sort of reconnected and when he saw that i was okay it was uh he had like the biggest smile on his face and that meant a lot to me too you know just knowing 
that somebody who uh, I really respected knew that I had recovered from that. And then, um, you know, still being in pain after just because you got sober doesn't mean that you don't have pain. So after I got sober and ended up in a ton of pain, I found this stuff called Kratom, which is a mild opioid, uh, which shouldn't really scare people. It's not addictive in the same way that opioids are addictive. Uh, it does not cause respiratory depression, so it cannot kill you. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that everybody should know. And when I found out there was an opioid out there that could help for pain, but it doesn't kill you, uh, I decided to take it. And that was really, really a tough thing to handle because I know, for example, like Frankie, like you go to AA and it's really helped you. And I don't, I don't want to ever talk bad about that program because it's done so many great things to help so many people. However, they are very, very rigid. And when I started taking Kratom, I basically got kicked out of AA even from people in my own rehab that I went to, I was supposed to speak at an AA meeting and they said, well, you're not allowed to speak because you're on Kratom. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know how, like how sort of like innocent Kratom is? And they're like, well, we don't know anything about it. And, you know, it was like one of these things. And so that made me feel really shitty to even get, I got bumped out of the sobriety community. People saying like, well, you're not sober anymore. And I don't really believe that anymore. I feel like sobriety is for us. Like it's, it's within you. The individual. Yeah, it's like whatever was killing you and you're not doing that anymore, that's, to me, uh, that's sobriety, you know, and that's where people need to find, you know, like if if some people, um, I know a lot of people in AA that use marijuana and, um, or antidepressants or whatever, and I don't, I don't want to judge those people. Like, I'm done with that. You know, I, I used to be like that where, oh, look at this guy, look what he's doing. And I, I'm just not like that anymore. It's like, do what you need to do. Um, as long as you're okay, I love you like a brother and, and that's all I need to know, you know, um, are you okay? Uh, and people know when they're not okay. Yeah. People know when they're slipping up, people know when they're doing something for pain or when they're doing something for fun. And, um, I just choose to live my life like that and try to be like non-judgmental because I went through it and I know how much it hurt me to sort of lose all my friends in AA because I was taking something just cause I was in pain. Yeah. I think that's pretty stupid, you know? And then beyond that. Uh, more recently, I was telling Frank, and this is something that's going to be really controversial among people that are addicts, but I think it's actually, I think it's where the treatment lies is in um, things like psychedelics. And so I just started sort of tapping into psychedelics. And it's just in a, a more, it's just so interesting to me because like, I always was, and I don't know how Frank, how you are with this stuff, but like, I was always drawn to stuff. Like I if I had a drink, I needed five drinks. If I had a pill, I needed five pills, you know? And so with psychedelics, it's like, I've used them, but I, I, I don't seek them out at all. Like I, I did a, a drug called Ibogaine, which was the, the sole reason I did it was to reset pain receptors in my body. I don't really have too many addiction problems anymore. So while it does sort of shake free all these addictions, like I quit a 30 year chewing tobacco habit the very next day. So I know that it works for addiction, okay. but it also cleared out all the depression in my brain, cleared out all the anxiety in my heart. It um, just it literally got rid of physical pain in my body to where my knee and my shoulder was so bad that they needed surgery. And I don't need surgery anymore. And I walk five miles a day now where I couldn't even walk a mile before, you know. Wow. So to me, I've made tremendous strides in using drugs that the doctors all tell us not to take. Uh -huh. And the drugs that the doctors tell us to take were killing me. So, so this was all uh, like self-research? Self you just kind of like took it upon yourself to say, hey, um, 
maybe I want to take uh, another route here and just research well, some yeah, stuff you gotta on my remember, own. That's, that's what I do. I'm a filmmaker, right? So gotcha. we seek out answers, right? So yes, like, sir. that's, that's what I was like trying to do is like literally just seek out answers. And so I did, I did Ibogaine and just so everybody knows, it's a schedule one drug. It's highly illegal. The way that I did it, I did it legally. I did it here in Oakland. So in Oakland, California, it's legal. Um, all these drugs are decriminalized. And I think that that's what the entire country needs to do. Because when you look at the real statistics of like, well, why do we want to keep people away from drugs, right? We want people, we want to stop people from dying. Well, we don't really care about cigarettes and we don't really care about alcohol. We'll let those slide. Yeah. That's only, you know, 600,000 people a year yeah. that die from those two combined. You know, it's like, it's insane that we just like let that go. We let that slide. We have 75,000 people dying from opioids a year, like things like that. We just let it slide. We let, we let it go. And then we lose, you know, 50,000 people to coronavirus and the entire country shut down. So we're not looking at these things as like as serious issues as we should. Um, but if we want to stop these issues from happening, it's really easy, I think, to um, I think what's happened with most people is they're mentally um, they're I wouldn't say mentally ill, but they have mental issues like that's what I had. I had mental issues that were underlying issues that made me want to take stuff all the time. They were, they were underlying PTSD, underlying trauma, trauma underlying yeah. uh, physical pain that were, were driving me towards substances. And I think when you get, can get rid of that, you, you just change a lot about yourself and a lot about you know, like what you want out of life. And I'm just in a different direction. It's like Ibogaine took me and just spun me in the right direction and pointed me that way and said, go this way. And so, um, that's what I've been doing. I'm actually about to drop a short film that I think is probably uh, it's it's 15 minute movie, but in 15 minutes it's like an epic. So yeah. um, I just showed it to my brother. I showed it to my father. Showed it to my mom. I just wanted to make sure my family was cool with it. Uh, I need to show it to a couple more people, and then I'll probably put it out very soon, very publicly. Uh, just something simple, like I'll probably just post it on Instagram TV because I think that that's a way that no one's ever really thought of putting out a movie. And that's a way that's just like, you open up your Instagram and Hey, there's the next Chris Bell movie. You're like, wait a second. What is this? Like yeah. I get the whole movie. It's right here. I don't have to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do anything. No, right. it's, it's like, you it's like right Netflix. there. It's just a post. And the thing is that by, by doing that, I don't like, I was on the phone with uh, these producers yesterday and I was like blowing their mind by telling them this. So like, this could be a whole, a whole new way of putting out yeah, content. No and I'm yeah. like, yeah, like, well, maybe it could be, you know, like the, the hurdle is this, like, say um, Frank wanted to make a movie about uh, what he went through, right? And he wanted to make a movie about it. You got to go out and you got to raise money. And then you got to find other filmmakers to help you. And then, you know, there's so many steps, right? And then you got to like, um, and then it, even if you make a good movie, like I have plenty of people that email me and stuff like, hey, I made a movie. Hey, check this out. And they want me to like bring it to Netflix and stuff. And the chances of like that happening, like you getting in touch with somebody like me and me walking it in Netflix and like, that's good luck, buddy. You know, like that's, <laughs> that's just not going to happen. And like, cause I'm trying to get my own stuff on Netflix. Yeah. I don't, I don't have time or the ability to really get other people's stuff on Netflix unless it's something that's like really, really good. Like for example, I did a documentary with um, Diamond Dallas Page and it was about recovery. And I think it's one of the best documentaries about recovery 
that anybody will ever see. It's called The Resurrection of Jake the Snake. It's about Jake the Snake Roberts. And I was actually, when they called me to do that movie, they called me because I did Bigger, Stronger, Faster. Yeah. And they said, you know, this isn't your thing because you're, you're probably not into this. <laughs> here's what we're doing. Crazy. And I said, you know, guys, actually, I have like a really big admission to make to you. And I don't want to tell you right now, but I'm actually in rehab right now, like for drugs and alcohol. Did that, like, and they were like, mind? what? Yeah. yeah, it blew their mind. And I said, but and they and they were like, oh, so like you can't help us on the movie. I'm like, no, absolutely. I want to I want to produce the movie with you guys, okay. you know, and they were like so excited. And they're like, but how can you produce it if you're in rehab? I'm like, well, I'm like 60 days in. I'm, I'm pretty much better by now. Yeah. You know, so like, so let's rock. Let's do this. And so, um, you know, I, you know, honestly, like for me, I don't know, Frank, how it was for you. But like for me, it was really just separating myself from alcohol for like a long enough period of time with enough people around me that cared about me. That's really what that's it was. The support group. You know? That's a, yeah. It wasn't I, like I, I really loved alcohol that much. I was done with it at that point. No, you know? I, I agree with you on that, Chris, because they say usually for the first 90 days, you, you relieve that. So you got the mental obsession and then you got the physical obsession. The first 90 days, you can get rid of that, that mental obsession. So for me, I wasn't really physically dependent uh-huh. on it, you know, as in I was going through a hard time. And when I enjoyed a few drinks, it, in, it ended up going to coping with it because I didn't want to sit with myself, kind of what you talked about. For my father, on the other hand, he had both. You know, he had the pills and, and, and the alcohol. So yeah. he had not only the mental obsession, but the physical obsession. Like he needed it. Well, like, and he, and he, also had, he also had really bad and still does really have really bad physical pain. And right, like that's, broken that's one thing I'm, I'm talking to your dad about is um, I would love to get, so like, I don't know, like, I don't do these psychedelic treatments. I don't know how to like necessarily like somebody like your dad would go about doing it. I don't recommend that he just go, runs out and gets mushrooms and goes <laughs> and does it. But, but I do think that if your dad um, found, like finds the right person and does it with the right person and goes through a, like this mushroom trip, that, that could actually heal his physical pain. Because when I did psychedelic mushrooms first, when I did, I did psilocybin mushrooms before I did ibogaine. And before I did ibogaine, my knee was like so bad that I couldn't even walk. And then after I did the mushrooms, that's when I realized like, wait, my knee doesn't really hurt anymore. And then after I did the ibogaine, it even helped more. Yeah. So and I, and I, I, know, I know that these things can heal the body because what they're doing is they're actually remapping your brain. And so your dad's receptors are all out of whack. Your dad's receptors are telling him to relive an injury every single day that he's had for what, 20, 30 years, you know? Yeah, yeah like, which he does, man. He's had especially, it forever, so he's reliving that. He's reliving that every day. If we would have reset his pain receptors, uh, his pain receptors wouldn't wouldn't be maxed out every single day. He'd have way less pain. It's not like it's going to just heal everything on his body, but it will bring the pain down to like such a tolerable level that you won't have any of those weird cravings to go do anything. Like my feet would burn every single day. Like I couldn't even walk on it. When your dad came, I just like you know I talk to your dad probably more than I talk to you. Yeah. Um, he's he. First of all, he's that kind of guy. You know, he's just that kind of guy you could talk to forever, and he's just so nice and and kind. But the thing is that um, with your dad, I just instantly connected with him with the pain thing. You know, I was like, man, we got to get you out of pain. We you're hurting. We got to fix you. You know, and it's so fun. whatever way we can do that, you know. Because um, when you met him, Chris, he, it was a week right out of he went to the farm right out of right out of rehab. A week right after we flew, we we saw you. 
and and that's the thing is like I don't want also don't want to like mess with people in AA and tell them like hey mushrooms are the answer and have them go off on some weird no, you, know, those are, you said those are weird. legal in Cal- those are legal in California the mushrooms you're talking about they're legal in Denver and they're legal in Oakland but but you can kind of like honestly you can find them anywhere I'm sure there's people in New York that um that do treatments and do things like that. It's really a matter of seeking them out. I always just recommend, I don't know what the, is weed legal in New York or no? Is it still illegal there? Eh, it's like a gray area right now. They have dispensaries, it's but a it's gray. only, yeah. So like what I, well, so what I tell people out here in California, there's a dispensary on every corner. Yes. And I just say, go ask in the dispensary. You'll find somebody that has mushrooms. Absolutely. <laughs> that's basically, yeah. that, that's how I found them. I just it's- asked. You know, it's very and, um, it's, it's very decriminalized now, Chris. Like it's very yeah. low. It's just like honestly, it's just like a, it's basically a ticket now, man. Like you're not going to get arrested for it unless you have something else with it, really. You know. And I, I like, don't brought, recommend brought back that to people. The house. And I don't recommend that people do any of these things like just on their own by themselves. Like a lot of this, a lot of these things are better done in more of a, um, you know, more of a medicinal setting, more of a clinical setting. So even a lot of times when people get treated with mushrooms. They're in a doctor's office and they're like laying down on a couch with a mask on and listening to music. You know, I don't recommend taking them and going out to a concert and things like that. You're not going to get anything out of that. Yeah. You know, you're not going to get any, you're not going to get any healing out of that. The only way to really get healing is to do it at home in the dark by yourself or with somebody else there to help guide right. you, you know, and that's the only way you're going to really get something out of it. That's, that's like long lasting. I'm looking at it more of like a spiritual journey, Chris, right? Like it's for you. It's not to get, like you just said, to go to a concert and maybe even put you in a bad position. Like this is a spiritual journey for you type of deal, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that like um, the thing that I like about psychedelics is you only have to do them like, you know, every once in a while. Like you, you don't have to, you, well, you don't have to do them every once in a while. You can just do it once. But um, what I like is that you could do it just once and it could have really profound effects. But if you want more out of it, you can keep going back to it. But it's not something that you would want to do every day. Like mushrooms are kind of scary. Yeah. Like you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't like, I mean, they, they kind of like bring up all your demons too. So when they bring up all your demons and you're facing those, that's not really that much fun. And you like a lot of times you'll just cry, you know, you'll cry and cry and cry, but then other times you'll laugh and laugh and laugh. So these are really um, mentally challenging stages that you're going through. It's not something that's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to do some shrooms and, watch people's faces melt off. Like, you know, that stuff could be fun for some people, but like, like I find fun in it. I find it to be, like you said, like a spiritual journey. And then, you know, the difference between Ibogaine and most of the other things is like when you do mushrooms and when you do ayahuasca, when you take some of these other plant medicines, you go on this outward journey to find answers in the universe. Whereas with Ibogaine, you search within yourself. So like when I did Ibogaine, I was like, oh my God, like, it's a it's a wake up call. You realize like, oh my God, everything in my life is my fault. Everything in my life is me. So the reason why Chris Bell doesn't have a, a TV show on Netflix right now, it's Chris Bell's fault. It's not, oh, because there was a writer's strike or oh, because the coronavirus came up or oh, you know, yeah. like, no, the reason I don't have what I want is all because of me. It doesn't come down to anybody else. And when you make that realization, there's two realizations I had when I did a psychedelic trip. One is everything's my fault. Um, that was that was the big one. Like, Meaning, like look, you were responsible for your own like misfortune. Or? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. You're you're responsible for your own misfortune or your own fortune, right? Okay. 
so that's that's a huge realization. And then the other realization that you have is it sort of breaks down all these barriers and walls. Like I think a lot of times I would be, you know, you look up to somebody, so you kind of like maybe afraid to say something mm-hmm. or afraid, like but you lose all of that. Like where you'll just go tell somebody the next day how you really feel, you know, yeah. and um, not in a, not necessarily in a bad way, because what it also does is it really brings about this sense of calm. Yeah. So what it did for me is like, I used to be the person who'd be like bottled up, bottled up, bottled up, explode, right. And explode. And you don't want to see that. But now there's nothing bottled up because I can tell you, I can, Hey Frank, I didn't like what you did yesterday. Here's the problem I have with it. And I can tell you without even like used to, if I used to confront somebody like that, I would get about this, like, well, I did this like, like, um, you know, like you're going to get into a fight. I would yeah. get like, yeah. like yeah, I'd get all fight, revved yeah. up. I'd get, I'd get anxious. Mm-hmm. But now I can just tell you like, Hey man, I didn't like what you did yesterday. Can we talk about it? And, and I have no, like, I'm just really calm about it. And by being, by, by extracting all the anxiety out of me, what that's done for me has been incredible because I can just talk now without really, uh, without being aggressive. And I'm from New York. I talk with my hands all the time, like you guys probably do, <laughs> yeah. right? That's what we do, man. That's how we, we're East Coasters, right? We just like to talk. And sometimes that can be overbearing to people, I think. And sometimes I would think, man, shut your mouth. You talk too much, you know? But when you have this calm about you, you can stop and, and sort of smell the roses and even listen to what other people have to say which mm-hmm. is sometimes important in life, you know? <laughs> we should yeah, listen to no. what everybody else is saying. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's funny you say that, especially as a police officer, right? You just have to, you have to, you have to listen. You can't over talk. You need to listen and comprehend on what they're saying so you can try to understand them. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of happy. I'm, I'm happy you said that, Chris. Um, and I'm happy you, you brought up a lot of, uh, a lot of key points I just took away from you was in your recovery was your support group. And I have always said that too, was there's a blessing, right? Without my, support group i couldn't have done it and i i was just blessed i had good friends and a good support group and some people also might not feel comfortable like you just said even making that support group happen because no one's gonna know really like people could tell if you're if you're if you're suffering um but they're not really ever gonna know unless you you tell them yeah. So when you well, and, the, like, and like the drinking part is easy. Like it's easy to get drunk every day. It's so so forget about accept- everything. It's so socially acceptable, man. And when you said this whole Corona thing, and the first thing I wanted to hit and say to you was, how insane is it, man, that gyms are not essential, which um, but that liquor stores are. You know what I mean? It's like it, it's it's so yeah. valid point. People, valid point. It, it, it's like, uh, and it comes down to the money, man. You know, it's just like, uh, the, I, Chris, I read something like liquor, uh, liquor store sales are up like over 200%, man. Right. Yeah. Now. Liquor, liquor is way up. Drinking's up by like 60% overall or something like that. And then, yeah, like the sales are up like crazy. I think you made, and, you had mentioned that like you know, earlier. Like we let that slide. Yeah. Well, it's know? all, it's all, uh, th- this whole thing with the quarantine, it's like, yeah, how so? Like, why can't we have gyms open and just be careful? Like, yeah. why can't you just say, "Hey, the gyms are open." Like, if the supermarket's open and everybody's in there buying stuff, why can't I go to the gym and be the same distance from people with a mask on and lift? Like, it doesn't seem like it makes any any sure. sense. And yeah. it's like we don't know that it can spread through sweat. We don't know that it can, you know, we don't know mm-hmm. even if it's airborne. Like, I was listening to NPR, you know, today, and they. they 
they're still not even sure if this is an airborne virus. Like, yeah, there's stuff a whole, that lot we of, heard, yeah. whole lot of unknowns. Yeah, but with stuff this. that we heard, remember, we heard, um, we heard like six, eight weeks ago that this is airborne, yeah. right? Like, that's what that was definitive. And, and today, I heard that they we're not even sure if this is airborne anymore. And I'm going, wait a second, does anybody know anything, anything about yeah, this, really? You know, and, it, and it's really, I know that it's frustrating to a lot of people. Like, I say, I just, you know, stay in. But I know that there's going to get to a point where people aren't going to do that anymore. I know, like, for example, on Friday here in California, there's a couple gyms in the area that are going to, like, open up yeah. just because um, cause they said they don't care anymore, you know? Um, my brother closed his gym because it's he, he's, his gym is free. Yeah. And it's a lot, it's more of a liability to him. if somebody, right. you know, somebody's in there and they're sick and whatever. So Makes sense. he just closed it more for that reason. And also like, I think Mark is really smart and I, I really respect him on this. He's like, look, man, everybody that we've been lifting with, we, we've all been lifting forever. We've been smashing ourselves forever. He's like, I just want to sort of force people to take off for a little bit, you know, oh, and like see what they the do and see button. how they respond. Yeah. Yeah. Hit the reset button. Like, right. So like, um, Right now, every single day, um, like right after I get off the phone with you guys, I'll, my buddy's coming over and we walk and we walk for five miles, you know? So yeah. that's what I do every day. I don't, I haven't lifted in like a month, but I don't really care because I'm not going to, you know, you're not going to just drift away into nothing. Yeah. And, um, I've, you know, I've been, I've had, you know, five, 600 pounds on my back every week for, you know, the past, you know, 20, 30 months. You get it's the, like, um, well, might as well take a break from that. You yeah. get the same satisfaction from the walk that you do like in the gym. Is it the same like feel? Is it the same kind of endorphin um, or what? Not really. I mean, it's different. I, I just, I decided to just surrender to this process. Uh -huh. And I think I like you said you, that. I like that. I like, yeah, I, I, like, I like you said surrender, Chris. I like that. Well, I think when you do that, you just, you know, like, I can't control this. So like, hey, my brother even closed his gym. Now I could go to his gym, pick up some dumbbells and bring them back to my house and set up a little home workout thing. And you know, I, I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to take off. Yeah. Like what's wrong with just taking some time off mm -hmm. and letting my body heal. Cause I've been in so much pain for so long. So it just makes sense to like let everything heal up. It's actually a perfect time. Cause I just did that Ibogaine treatment only like a month ago. Yeah. So letting the body recuperate, letting everything um, get back to normal to me is I'm okay with it. You know? Yeah. So you're like 100% yeah, pain-free right now? Like you feel good? Pretty much. I mean, like, you know, in all reality, so my knee was so bad that I needed like ACL surgery. And the only, so it, it doesn't, I shouldn't say it hurts. It's just that I've been doing so much walking yeah. that my I can feel it in my knee, yeah. you know? And that's kind of like the only pain that I have right now. Okay. My rotator cuff was so bad I couldn't. I couldn't lift my arm over my head, you know, it was just stuck. And you didn't have and that so surgery that, repaired? No, I had, I had an Ibogaine repaired. Oh man, that's <laughs> awesome. So, well. Yeah. So what Ibogaine also does is like, so all my muscles were tense. Like everything, everything was pulling, um, like every muscle was like pulling against each other, yeah. you know, in my body. And when you do, um, Ibogaine, it relaxes all the muscles. So everything that was all tense and tight just, just sort of right. relaxed. Yeah. And when it relaxed, that allowed all the stuff that was in pain around it to just sort of not hurt anymore. I mean, really, it was like a miracle. It's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me was doing Ibogaine because I didn't uh, think it was going to work. I was like, okay, this will like, th that's great. I won't have any more cravings. I won't have any more 
you know, addictions. That's really cool. But I don't think it's going to work for so, pain. So, There's no way. So because I was thinking if it worked, for, if it worked for pain, wouldn't everybody know about it? Yeah. And it's like, nope. <laughs> so do you consider like the taking of the ibogaine like a pivotal moment in your life? Because it helped you like reset these pain receptors and, and um, kind of. Yeah, well, I say in, in my short film that I'm going to put out very, yeah. very soon, I say it was by far the most profound experience in my life. Really? It's the most, yeah, it was the most important. It was, you know, I don't have any kids. So a lot of people will say, hey, next to the birth, birth of my child, it's yeah. the most important thing to happen. So I don't have any kids. Um, you know, I've been to Sundance Film Festival with my movie and Ibogaine was way more important and a way better experience than even that, you know? Yeah. So I, I can't even compare the two. If somebody said, what's better? Going to Sundance with your movie or doing Ibogaine? I would say doing Ibogaine is more important. Wow, that's, that's heavy. You know? That's heavy. Yeah. And again, exactly. Uh, prime example of the hero journey. And what we kind of talk about is you go through this cycle of life where, you know, suffering is part of life, right? That's how we learn and that's how we grow physically and mentally. And you have to learn from each life experience. And I think Chris is a prime example on that. And that's why I wanted to get him on the show is because so much effing life experience in general. And he never uh, really gave up. Not ever, never. But literally, the, the, the legit definition of not giving up and coming out with well, something new each time, I, you know, Chris? Yeah, in a way, I would uh, I would almost argue that I did give up a lot. Like, But it was like I would give up a lot and then I would come back. So like because there was there was a lot of times where I was searching for answers and then I would just stop because I'm like, well, it's not even worth it. You know what I mean? And I would give up for like a little while, but then something would come back in and fire me back up and I'd keep going again, you know? So even if people do give up, just know that you can get back on the horse and, and get out there and, and change things. You know, I, I think like it's never too late for anything. It's never too late to change your diet. It's never too late. You know, that's another thing we should really talk about. I, I drastically changed my diet in order to get out of pain. You know, I say I tried everything and, and I really did. You know, I, I did a carnivore all meat diet for two years just to get out of pain, just, just eating meat basically. Um, and that helps you get out of pain? Straight. It helped a lot. Okay. It really helped a lot. So if people have like inflammation uh -huh. and things like that, that's the first place to start. Like I told Frank's dad, like, Hey, I know you're going to hate me, but you got to stop eating bread and carbs <laughs> and things that. like that. If you really, <laughs> if you, if you really want to get better, like that's, you know, that's where you start. And when you start removing those foods, you'll feel a lot better. Yeah. However, um, like, it's not going to do what it's not going to do what it, what ibogaine did for me. Like it's not going to, it's not going to remap your brain and fix, fix the problem. But what it's going to do is uh drastically lower inflammation. And there's several ways that people can do that. So people can do that on a carnivore diet, which is like an all meat diet. They can do it on a very low carbohydrate diet. Um, they can do it even on a whole foods diet, as long as it's like, you know, the carbs are like rice and potatoes and things like that. So I don't, I'm not dogmatic about how I tell people to eat. There's many ways to lower inflammation. There's like an autoimmune paleo protocol that you can use, you know, which is basically all whole foods. You can eat fruits and vegetables. There's carnivore, which like cuts out fruits and vegetables. There's a lot of reasons for cutting out fruits and vegetables. Mainly um, fruits and vegetables have what they call anti-nutrients in them. They have things that are there to protect the plant. Those yeah. things are toxic to humans. And a lot of people think that those things are great. They call them polyphenols and say that we need them. But then other people that, you know, are really well re researched on this stuff 
also show that polyphenols can be damaging to us and cause stomach aches and cause you know people to not feel so well and cause things like kidney stones and things like that. So we, you know, basically by cutting those things out because you don't necessarily need the nutrients in there because you can get them all from animal products is the reason why a carnivore diet works. But at the same time, we see a lot of people do really well on plant-based diets, right? Yeah, so yeah. not to like poo-poo them. I don't, I don't think a plant-based diet is good at all. But I do think that is better than eating the standard American diet which is a bunch of junk foods. But I think like Mark and I often talk about the war on carbs. When we talk about the war on carbs, a lot of times we'll get blowback because people say, hey, bro, carbs aren't that bad. I eat potatoes every day. I'm like, I'm not really talking about potatoes and rice. I'm talking about the war on carbs is a war on cookies and candy yeah, like the and bread and bullshit. You know, that, and, yeah, bullshit yeah, yeah, that's kind of what we mean. And it's just an easy way to say like, yeah, I launched a war on carbs. So Basically, you just read a label that says no carbs, you eat that, you know? And then, you know, there's certain other things that we caution to stay away from, like vegetable oils and things like that. But for the most part, that's a really simple way. We just try to find simple ways that work for people to help them, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Because people don't realize too, Chris, and I'm really happy you brought this up, is not only, like, like, it's so cliche, but you are what you eat. Like, what food actually does to you if you eat the right foods mentally physically spiritually and it's not how much disease it can prevent if you're eating the right the right type of food you know kind of like the old school way i also say i think it's a lot more of what we don't eat than what we do eat so people that are practicing intermittent fasting have great results right people that practice um like you know time-restricted eating or they even practice like uh, tracking their calories. Why do those people get results? Well, because they're actually paying attention. Paying attention, yep. I don't, I don't like tracking calories. I hate it. But if I wanted to get real, real lean, that's the only real way to do it. Mm-hmm. You got to know what you're putting in your body every time, you know. And um, I got really, really lean doing a carnivore diet, um, which is great. And so, but I can only take it to a certain point, and then even at that certain point, I have to count calories. So. Dr. Sean Baker, who's been my mentor, if anybody's interested in any of this stuff I'm talking about, then go to meetrx.com. And I think right now, because of the quarantine, they have a free um, trial thing for like, you know, you get the first month free or whatever. Uh, but MeetRx is great because they, they, it's all these stories and all this coaching on this carnivore diet. But yeah, Dr. Sean Baker, the guy that mentored me, uh, he's shredded right now. He's like 53 and he's real lean right now. But he's only been real lean for a couple months, and it's because he's got to track his calories now because he's actually trying to get lean to do some CrossFit things. But even, you know, even him who never tracked calories before, when he wants to get real like lean down, you know, hey, you have to do that. That's yeah. the only way to do it. You know, well, calories and calories, it's not the only yeah. way to do it, but it's you you could track in your head, right? But like you're still tracking, so yeah. <laughs> Frankie, you guys there? Yeah, I'm, there you go. Frankie, you good? Right. Oh, I think we lost Frankie. I think he's there. I see. Uh, I see. Uh, I mean, I see it there, but I don't see him. I don't know. I he, keeps, him. Uh, he keeps like going off or something. Now he's on pause. I don't know. Something might have happened. But let's go back to this uh, Dr. Sean Baker situation. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah, he's in here. Um, now, you said, um, so how did you get into uh, – the whole like the carnivore diet did you research it or did you like know dr sean baker and 
and went from there? Or you just, cause you seem yeah, like a person so, that's super intelligent and you like do your own research and kind of get into it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I stumble upon a lot of things. So I've done a ketogenic diet forever. Like since, um, you know, basically back since back in like the nineties, I've been doing keto sort of forever. Um, my, my brother and I have been on Joe Rogan's podcast several times and we go on Joe Rogan and talking about keto and stuff like that. And the next thing you know, Joe Rogan has this guy on talking about this carnivore diet. And I was like, I actually did a carnivore diet when I was like 25 years old. When I first moved to California, I got to California and these guys, uh, Michael Hearn, who's kind of a famous bodybuilder and his buddy, Ron Fedko, who's a a power lifter. They basically just told me, Hey, if you want to be a better power lifter, you got to lose weight. They're like, you're too fat. Like you're too fat for how tall you are. You know, you got to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I don't really know what to do. And the guy, Ron, he just said, just uh, red meat and water. And he was like, dead serious. And I was like, that's all he said. Like, <laughs> he wrote, what look at him, like, what the hell? <laughs> I said, what do you mean red meat and water? He's like, that's what you need. You need to just eat. He's like, red meat's got all the nutrients you need. It's got nothing that you don't. Just eat red meat. Go buy some ground beef. You can have some eggs if you want. Just eat that. Eat that every day. <laughs> and I'm like, till when? He's like, until I tell you not to. I'm like, okay. <laughs> And then um, I turn around and walk away. He's like, hey. And I turn back around. He's like, not even a stick of gum. So I was like a young kid. I was like 20 years old. So I just stuck to it, right? I was 235 pounds or something. Next thing you know, I'm down under 200 pounds. Ooh. And I'm competing at like the highest, like at my, my highest level, you know, and I'm stronger than I've ever been. And um, that was after just a couple months of doing it, like two months or something like that. And, um, basically sort of from there, I knew that eating just meat worked, but I sort of forgot about it because like, you know, life goes on and you start, you know, like you go through life and you sort of forget about things. And then when I heard Dr. Baker on on Joe Rogan's podcast, you know, 20 years later talking about how he's doing this all meat carnivore diet. Like I used to do that. I need to call this guy. So I immediately called him. And then because I'm a filmmaker, I have, you know, pretty good access to people. And when I ask people questions, you know, they usually get back to me and stuff. So Dr. Baker got right back to me, came up to Sacramento to train with Mark and I. And then next thing you know, we're buddies with him and we're both on a carnivore diet, you know, both wow. Mark and I. So if you look at my brother, if you look at Mark Bell, he's, um, he's all over with the carnivore diet, talking about carnivore. Yeah, uh, you know, he has a, a challenge like Carnivore 100 where they did 100 days of carnivore yeah. and he helps a lot of people through it. It's really just simple. You know, it's like it's simple and there's no reason to be dogmatic about it. So if anybody's listening going, that sounds stupid. All I'm really doing is putting red meat because it has all the nutrients that your body needs, putting red meat in the center of the diet. Red meat, um, I eat raw liver and I eat eggs. And that's that's at the center of my diet. And I don't eat raw liver because I love it. I eat raw liver because it's got more nutrients than any anything else in it. And I eat that like wow. maybe a couple times a week, you know. Um, but I almost take that like it's a supplement. Like I just kind of make it like sashimi and I just kind of like get it down, you know. Uh. Um, but then the things that you can enjoy, like egg yolks are delicious and ground beef is delicious and steak is delicious. I enjoy all those things as well. And then, um, you know, if I want to have something else, I'll have some fruit around it, maybe, you know, whatever. And that's about it. And so the diet's really simple. And while a lot of people think that I eat 10 pounds of meat a day because I only eat meat, what happens after a while 
is like you basically can get by on two steaks a day or a steak and a couple burgers a day, you know? So yeah. you don't end up eating that much. You end up eating like two to three pounds of meat, even so, if you're a big guy, you know? So what would you Anywhere say your one to three pounds of meat a day? Say. What would you say your caloric intake is? Roughly. My caloric intake is probably around 3,500 calories. Okay. Maybe, maybe more, maybe like 4,000. So I eat a lot of calories. I eat a lot, you know? Um, I, mean, I don't eat dude. necessarily. Well, you know, meat has a lot of fat in it. Yeah. Um, and I also add a lot of fat too. So I eat, um, I actually found a lower, so I, I, I found ways to adjust the diet. Like if I want to get leaner, I eat more lean steaks and I use this company called certified Piedmontese. They actually sponsor me, uh-huh. but Piedmontese beef is amazing because it's, um, if you guys saw bigger, stronger, faster, those big muscular cows, yeah, that's what a Piedmontese cow looks like. It's jacked. And the fact that they jack, they have double muscle. So Piedmontese cattle are way more tender than any other cattle, right? And um, the so the meat's super tender, and it's got like half the fat of regular steak. So gotcha. even if you're eating like a regular bodybuilding diet, this would be a way better choice because you can get more steak in with less fat, and it tastes just as good or better. So yeah, like, um, and I also have like, if people follow me on Instagram at big, strong, fast, and they want to try Piedmontese, I'm not trying to sell them anything, but they can go to my, um, Instagram link, the link in my bio and click that and you can save 25%, which is actually a pretty good deal on Piedmontese beef, which is like the leanest. And in my opinion, the best tasting beef that's, uh, that's out there. So I ate so much meat that I got a meat sponsor. I always joke about, but it's (laughs) actually true, you know? So I think that's pretty cool. And I'm like, I like to be transparent about things. Like, so I have a couple sponsors. I have um, Perfect Keto sponsors me, but I like all their stuff. I use all all the Perfect Keto brand MCT powder. I'll put it in my coffee. You know, I, I'll use their supplements, um, certain things. And so I just only endorse things that I actually really like. Like I work with Chris Duffin, who uh, owns Kabuki Strength. And right now, like, home gym equipment is going out of control yeah, roof, yeah. and he's selling, he's selling a ton of it and he's got the best stuff. So like, why not have a, a discount code for, for him? Yeah. Why not help my follow? Like I always tell people like, Hey, I make money off this, but like, why not help you guys out at the same time as you're helping me out? doesn't really make sense not to, you know? Mm-hmm. So all like, I, if you click the link in my bio on my Instagram, it links to everything. It links to my brother's company. It links to everything. And there's usually a discount attached to it. So people can do that. They want to, they want to go shopping during the quarantine. Yeah, people do <laughs> but, a lot you know, of most that right of these, now. Uh, so. Well, and, and like, I just tell people because all the stuff is good. It's yeah. not like there's no garbage in there. Like, you, know, you won't see me advertising for something I don't use. You know? Gotcha. Right. It's, it's helped you get to where you are. Chris, I have a question about Dr. Baker. Have you ever talked to him about the addiction and recovery process and anything about the red meat, uh, like carnivore diet? Like, yeah. Psychologically, yeah, actually, like, specifically so- for that? Dr. Baker and I are working on trying to put together a film um, about carnivore. And I was hoping that part, like a section of the movie will cover, you know, uh, some stories of addiction and recovery, because like I've gotten people that like, you know, they DM me and they tell me that they're all messed up. And I tell them like, well, Hey, why don't you try also on top of uh, what you're trying to do to get sober? Why don't you try a carnivore diet? Why don't you try just eating meat and see what happens? I have this guy out in Texas who like got sober, got on a carnivore diet, lost a bunch of weight, and now he feels great, you know. And now and and he's staying away from 
alcohol. And I don't think everybody can do that. What he says with the diet really, really helps him to stay away from alcohol. I know when I first started doing keto, I was really still like, um, I was very new to sobriety. Um, I was only like, I was only like two years in when I started doing keto, mm-hmm. maybe even one year in, right? When I started doing like this keto diet again, I was only like one year in a sobriety. But I remember like once I started the diet, I had something else to connect to. Yeah. So what I tell people is like, some days I would wake up and I, before I did Ibogaine, I still had a lot of serious depression going on. And so like I would wake up and I'd be depressed and not want to do anything. And I'd say, all I got is this stupid diet. You know, and I would call it even stupid. And but it, but but it would be like that's all I had, and that would make me run towards it more. Yeah. And so then next thing you know, I'd look in the mirror and I'd have abs, you know, yeah. and I'd be like, oh, this isn't a stupid diet at all. This is an awesome diet. You know, it's actually working and out for me. Yeah. I know to a lot of people they think like abs are vain and this and that. To me, it's just something like I never had, and it made me feel really good about myself. Yeah. It's an to me, it's an accomplishment. Like I was always a fat kid. And then to have abs popping out, you're like, hey, I'm proud of that. They're not perfect yet, but like, hey, I'm proud of it. I got somewhere. I made some progress, you know. And so for me, it's just like um, looking good isn't vain. I tell people all the time, I don't think it's vain. I think it's about becoming whole, like becoming a whole human being. I'm like, you should care about your appearance. You should care, not overly like the way you're obsessed about it, but you definitely should care if you look like shit, you know. You yeah, definitely absolutely. should care. Like I, I didn't one, care. I, before I did not care, I was fat, I was sick, and I was dying, you know? And um, that was just six years ago. It wasn't that long ago, you yeah. know? Yeah, have respect for yourself type of deal. And people should. And that's, that's what you, you, you can't go through life not, you have to care. Because mm-hmm. then not only are you going to not care about yourself, and if you have kids or you're married, it's going to affect them as well. So I'm happy. Yeah, you said, absolutely. I'm happy you said that, Chris. Um, to jump back into the addiction topic, also as well, just for some of our listeners that are struggling, how how was the approach uh, when you had to come out to like Mark and your family about uh, kind of two part question? Like, how do you how what was your mindset like going and saying, "Oh shit, man! Like, I have a problem. I need help." And then two, like, how was your reaction when you said, "This is my issue. Like, I need help," and kind of feeling not holding it in. What do they say? They say like people worry about like the things people worry about um, don't happen eighty five percent of the time, something mm-hmm. like that. It's like a statistic. High and so that, yeah, yeah, it's probably higher than that. Right? And so like you could be worried, worried, worried. Oh, I'm gonna tell my brother he's gonna be so mad. My brother's like a fitness, you know, he's made millions of dollars in the fitness industry. Mm-hmm. He's gonna be like, what a disgrace my brother is. What a loser. You disgrace the family. You're off the team. Get out of here, right? Instead. It's like Mark's like, dude, we need to fix this right away. You know what I mean? Like, we need to get you to rehab. We need, like, they were, him and his wife were so caring, loving, and understanding that I thought I was going to be in so much trouble. But also, like, you know how you feel like you're in trouble? Like, when you let somebody down Mm. and you feel like you're in trouble? That's how I felt inside. And that's a direct result of my parents. And thank God for my parents. And I love my parents more than anything. And that's something my parents instilled in me was like, you're in trouble, mister, you know, like that feeling. Right. And I hate that feeling. There's nothing worse. And so I felt like I didn't like, I knew my family loved me and supported me, but I was in trouble. You know what I mean? Like I, I was like, I was in the doghouse with everybody. Like I knew it, but they didn't say it. You know what I mean? So I felt like I felt that way. And by feeling, 
Like a lot of people that are criminals or do bad things, they don't have that support in their family. They don't grow up with that. So like they don't feel like they're in trouble. So when I was in rehab with other people that didn't feel like they were in trouble, yeah. they never got better. It was always the people, like it was a kid whose dad wasn't there for him who was like, man, fuck all this. You know, like they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't pay attention. They wouldn't do, they wouldn't receive the messages. But when you're, when you think you're in trouble, you'll do everything they say in rehab. Like even yeah. the stuff that was stupid in rehab that I thought was stupid that they said to do, I'd still do it. I'd be writing down what I was grateful for. I'd be, you know, doing, yeah, yeah. doing all the prayers. I'd be doing everything because I was, I felt like I was in trouble and the kids that didn't feel like they were in trouble had a harder time getting better. So I don't know how you instill that in somebody, but I think, I think um, the biggest part of recovery overall is the, the will to change, the will and desire that the person has to want to change. I agree. And especially for at the end of the day, Chris, right, for themselves too. You know, it's you got to do it for you. And then once you do yeah, it you for definitely. you, it's going to affect your family and, and everything else in a positive way. Yeah, and you have to want to change. And if you don't want to change, you're never going to change. And that's, that's something that's huge, you know. Yeah, it's an excellent point that you brought up too about uh, not growing up. And you see that a lot with gangs, right? Like people that join gangs is because most of the time is that they didn't have a family. They didn't have a place to feel a part of, right? They didn't have a team. So it's like, all right, I'm going to join this gang. And this is the closest thing I'm going to get to being feeling like alive and being part of something. So then that's a lot we see. Yeah, in exactly. City. Um, exactly. So what, so after the beginning, early steps of recovery, Chris, like how, and it seems to me you were very, you got like busy in life again. And a lot of people don't have the same opportunities to be busy, right? To work out, to be with their family, to work on these films, to do all that. Now, was the first few years really, really tough for you in general? Or did you kind of not think about it because you're so busy? But it was always in the back of my mind, like, oh, man, am I going to slip up? Or I'm really craving it this bad today or and something like that. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't so much that. It wasn't it wasn't messing up. It was more like um it's more mental, like it's more like trying to get. So the the thing for me that hurt the worst was I'm a filmmaker. And for six years, I had writer's block. I couldn't write anything. So ever since I went to rehab, I could not sit down and get anything out on paper. Mm -hmm. And so I was just depressed and I didn't know it. And so when I did Ibogaine and it removed all the depression and got all the PTSD out of me and everything, I made a film that you know i made a 15 minute short film in like a week you know it took it's a, it's a month since i've done ibogaine but literally the movie was done within a week like that's how fast i worked after the ibogaine kicked in like i, I just basically focus. went nuts and yeah i mean i edited an entire movie like so fast Ooh. and the reason i was able to do that was because i i sat down on my computer again grabbed my microphone that i do voiceover with and words just came out of my mouth for the first time in six years. Like it all just were, it all just came flowing out. Like it's been built up, waiting to happen. And um, that was that's been the hardest part because I even made films during that time. Like I made Prescription Thugs and I made A Leap of Faith during those times. And th those were it was such a struggle to even get words out and even be able to write anything or do anything. And I don't think people understand. Like I I really. Like bigger, stronger, faster. Like I put in a lot of work on that, you know. And I, um, I worked like eighty hours a week at the end to get that thing done for Sundance. 
And I put in every, every ounce of effort I had on that. But shortly after that movie was over, I was already a drug addict. And it didn't take very long for uh, writer's block and stuff like that to kick in. And next thing, you know, I used to write scripts all the time. I haven't written a script in ages, but now I feel like now that I'm done editing this movie, I'm like, oh, you know what I need to do? I need to write another script. And I'm working on, um, I'm working on some really cool stuff. Like my pet project that I've had for like 10 years that I've been dying to do is like now coming to fruition. And that's called The Menace of Venice. The Menace of Venice is about a guy who's kind of a weird hero to me. I have like these anti-heroes. Yeah. But uh, Dan Duchesne, um, Dan Duchesne wrote the Underground Steroid Handbook, and basically was what I am today, like some weird kind of guy who has all these answers to these weird problems, <laughs> you know. And um, so I just identify with him a lot. Like Dan Duchesne solved problems with steroids. He was the first person to ever bring certain drugs to the market that everybody uses today, things like clenbuterol and growth hormone, even whey protein he brought to the market. Mm -hmm. um, he brought creatine to the market. He brought anything you can think of sports supplement wise, pretty much brought to the market. But mostly uh, he was known for being like the drug guru. And a lot of times he would give up a lot of like, he gave away um, whey, whey protein to the guy that started designer whey. He just said, you can take this and run with it. I'm not going to do anything with it, but it's the most highly absorbable protein on the planet. Billions and Dan Duchesne died penniless, but that's the kind of person he was. He's like a rebel. So I have a project about him. It's like a scripted uh, project and that's coming to light right now. And everybody's all excited about that, but I wouldn't be able to do that and get that thing off the ground. If I still had the same anxiety, depression and, and PTSD as I had before. Now, man, this is, it's just crazy on um, how, how much you've done in your life and how much, you know, ups and downs you've had, Chris, but still like, well, always, I'm always finding I'm a way old. to come back up. You know what I mean? I'll, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm old, I'm old, man. So yeah, I've done a lot, you know, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, old. it's, it's cool, man. It's cool to be able to go through life and have all these things happen and be able to use them for good, you know, like. Mark and I have met a lot of great characters along the way. I feel like this ride has been like the Wizard of Oz and it's only halfway over. So like <laughs> we've seen, I mean, we've, we've met everybody. It's like name somebody. It's like, you know, the only people that I haven't met that I really look up to are James Hetfield of Metallica and Eminem. Those are the only two people that I really look up to that I haven't met. But everybody else, like I love Quentin Tarantino. I met him, I sat down and had uh, breakfast with him at Sundance. You know, like wow. to me, like, um, they say don't, not to meet your heroes. And I would say that's only, only like half true. Even like, honestly, like even Arnold, how much we criticize Arnold in bigger, stronger, faster. Arnold is awesome in real life. He is so nice. And he's always been nice to me. Like he's, he's actually, the, the it's funny because I don't think he knows that I'm the guy that made bigger, stronger, faster. He's always been super nice to me, yeah. but the people around him are always give me dirty looks, you know, <laughs> like, Oh, that's that guy. He's the guy, you know? And the only reason we criticized Arnold in bigger, stronger, faster was like every, every movie needs a good bad guy. And why not have the bad guy be your hero? It was like sort of a, sort of a stylistic choice, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, but it all sort of fit together with, with the time and that we made that movie and everything like that. I, but I don't necessarily, even though he made a vegan movie, I don't necessarily think he's a bad person, you know? But they say, like, people say don't meet your heroes because a lot of times they'll 
Get let down, down, right? But, yeah. But a lot of times also you realize like what I think, I think it's good to meet your heroes because like you realize like what that's like and you're like, maybe, you know, maybe you don't want that. You know, I think um, one of the people for me that's been really influential has been Joe Rogan, who's just taught me like, I always thought I wanted fame until like I met Joe Rogan and he's got all the fame that he can want. Mm. And he's like, you don't want this, bro. Like, you don't, you don't want it, you know? And, and it's like talking to him and being around him and just seeing how people react to him. You're like, like, does anybody like Joe Rogan for Joe Rogan? Like besides his, you know, like he's got obviously a lot of good real friends, but, but like he says, like everybody wants him for some reason. They want to pitch a project they want. And I, I think that about myself a lot of times too. I have so many people always trying to get in touch with me and I don't answer my phone anymore because all these people that are trying to get in touch with me, they, they like want something and I hate to say no. So I just don't answer anybody anymore. But um, I think that's a big, that's a big thing is like, uh, you know, do, do, do people care about you for you? And I think that's a big part of the reason why I became a drug addict because anybody that was around me that they always just wanted to be part of what I was doing or wanted something. And I didn't have a lot of good real friends, you know, and I do now though. Okay. Perfect. I'm really happy you said that, man, because a lot of recovery is, you realize how much your life can change when you leave those group of friends that you thought were your friends and they're not. Well, my best friend now is my buddy Hottie, who's coming over here to walk and he's a chef baby. Yeah. So, so he's like my best friend now. He's a guy that, um, the, the reason he's my best friend is because he likes to do like-minded things. Like we're going to go on a five mile walk, right? He likes to do that with me. Um, we like to eat steak together, but the thing is that, he's going to keep me on a positive path. And he's just a normal everyday guy who works at a warehouse. And yeah. people think that's weird. It's like, they're like, Oh, you're this big filmmaker and your best friend works at a warehouse. Who cares? Like who cares? Yeah, sure you know what I mean, like I, I've, I've broken down all those societal norms and all the things like who you should be friends with, who you should hang out with, who you should not. And it's like, no, my best friend is a guy who has a lot of heart and who's an awesome guy who used to weigh, 400 pounds and now he weighs 200 pounds because of me and Mark, because of my, my brother and I, this guy lost over 200 pounds. He's on Instagram at the carnivore chef, but I'm so proud of him and he's become such a good friend. And he's just like, you know, when you, when you can count your friends on, they say you can count your good friends on one hand usually. Right. In life. And it's true. It's like when, when you need to go to the airport, who's going to drive you, you know, when you need to get, when you're in trouble and your car breaks down, Who's going to pick you up? And it's like, I don't have that many of those, you know, I don't really have that many of those. And I don't think a lot of people do. And I think we need to, we need to like drop our egos and start looking for more people like that, that want to be around us. It's like, there's a lot of people that want to be around you. Find those people, be around those people. My dad always taught me like the best things in life. One of the things he always said is like, go where you're wanted, not where you're not. Yeah. You know, so my brother always wanted to be in WWE, WWE. It's got to be WWE. And then like other wrestling federations wanted him and he wouldn't go because it wasn't WWE. Well, guess what? If he would have listened to my dad and went where he wanted to go, he might have had a different career. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Because yeah. like he would have went where he was wanted. He would have built up his name and then he would have got into where he wanted Eventually, to be. And yeah, I think that point. that's really, those are really important messages to receive, you know? Uh, exactly and talking about prescription thugs i wanted to hit one of these last questions was i watched sure. it with my father i watched it with my father and it was so uh 
it was emo- it was emotional for me because I know what you guys went through, and even just sitting there next to him watching it, how how was your mindset, man? Like in the middle of the film, and then after you felt you did it, you just watched it again, just like you know, be like you know, what what is it? Mean it's to weird. You? It's like it's it's weird because um, I don't watch that movie that much. Like I've only seen it a couple times. Bigger, stronger, faster. I've probably seen five hundred times. I sat through every screening. You know, I watched it every time. I was so proud of it. But I wasn't really proud of Prescription Thugs. I wasn't proud of who I was in it, you know? And I can't even look at myself on screen. I'm like, you know, I'm like 60 pounds fatter than Completely I am Completely different person than like you I look, now, look yeah. I can't even watch it, you know? So for me, it, it's it's tough. For me, it's, you know what? The best thing is that that's, the best thing is that I look like shit on Netflix, that's the best thing that could ever happen to me because if I go back and watch that movie now, yeah. I'm like, Oh my God, that's how people know me. Like that's how most of the world knows me. So wait till the world sees me now, you know, like that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking. It's like, this is going to be awesome. So um, the comeback is always the fun part, you know, and Rocky's my favorite movie. So I think it's like, it's a, it's a whole Rocky story, you know? No, a hundred percent. Like you said, I, I, it was, it was tough. Um, watching myself in Prescription Thugs was that's the hardest thing, and I don't because you were suffering watch it as that well, often. you know. That's why I was going to ask. Yeah, you and and I remember and I remember I remember suffering, and I remember there's a shot in the movie where I come home and I see my mom for the first time after rehab, and I give her this big hug, and it's like I that just makes me feel so bad when I see that, you know, like man, what did I do to my parents? What did I, you know, but. It's all good now, but it, it makes you sad when you see it, when you watch it, you know? Yeah. Well, again, that was more of the addiction talking and not really Chris. This is the real Chris. Um, so I'm really glad, man, that oh, you, thanks, you got up. Of course. Yeah, I'm glad that you got better, man. And it, and, it, and it's awesome, man. I'm really happy you're doing well. Uh, um, real quick, what? it's kind of a vague question, but it's, what, what's the best advice, man, you can give to someone that's really just starting off in the recovery journey or thinking about trying to, you know, step one, right? We're powerless over our disease. What's like the best little advice you can give to someone that might be listening saying, man, I, I messed up right now. I want to get help, but I bottle everything in and I don't want to be judged type of deal. Yeah. You just got to take that step. Like if, if you're, if you haven't taken the step towards sobriety, um, that that's the hardest part is just getting started and, and wanting to go. So if there's people out there that are like, Hey, I'm thinking about it, thinking about it. Um, that's one thing is just to get going. But once you do get going, once you do admit that you have an issue and you're, you're ready for it to be, you know, taken care of, just know that there's, it's, it's going to be a lot of work, but also know that there's a lot of things out there that can really help you. And so I would say if somebody's having a really, really hard time and they keep failing to look into other things, like I talked about with psychedelics, like I talked about with, there's other treatments, you know, it's not always just, um, just going to be AA that works. There's a lot of things out there that can help keep you away from alcohol and drugs, like diet, you know, like nutrition, eating good, um, exercising, different things that people can try. So try, try everything. And if things are failing, then, then look into some of these other things, like even just getting rid of a little bit of your depression by utilizing like some psilocybin mushrooms, and things like that, that it could be really, really helpful. I don't fear people falling down the rabbit hole of those things because I know that they're not drugs that people want to do every day. 
you know, they're not things that people want to return to. Um, but things like marijuana are. So I, w- I would say like I would recommend uh, looking into psychedelics even over like marijuana and stuff because marijuana doesn't really work for pain, you know. Um, the other things I would say for people is like don't be – like just don't be afraid of the rigidity of the AA program. Like the whole point of AA is like if you mess up, you, you just keep coming back, mm-hmm. you know. You can mess up every day. You can go there drunk every day. It doesn't matter. They don't, they're not supposed to judge you, right? They're not supposed to judge you. So when you walk through those doors, it's for you to be there. Um, sobriety, like I said, it, it's for you. It's like how you, how you see it. So like my problem what was killing me with prescription pills and alcohol. I have not done either one of those in six years. So yeah. what I've done, anything I've done outside of prescription pills or alcohol that somebody might consider not sober I don't care what you think. Remember that. I don't care what you think. And you need to think about that through your whole sobriety. As long as you're being honest with yourself, that's the number one rule. The number one rule in sobriety of all is just being honest with yourself. And most people can't do that. I've had a hard time doing that. I've had a hard time saying, like, I'm not addicted to stuff. And I am, you know. I'd be like, I could quit tobacco any day, but I couldn't quit it, you know. I had to do Ibogaine to quit that, you know. So I know that there are strong these strong roots that hold that hold the you know these drugs get a grip on us and they hold us really tightly. So we have to be careful um, with everything, like as addicts. So I just think the more like if you're already an addict and you're like, like this is why I recommend people do like look into diet. You're an addict, and every day you just keep pumping sugar into your body. Well, guess what? You're just feeding those dopamine levels. But if you go on these, what they call like dopamine fasts and you stay away from technology and you stay away from, um, you know, bad food and you stay away from things that give you these dopamine hits, Mm -hmm. the more time you spend away from these dopamine hits, think of it as intermittent fasting for your brain and your body, you know, where you're like, hey, I'm going to stay away from dopamine for a bit because I'm an addict. So just think about that. And like, Sometimes just chill, like go for a walk without your phone, you know, go, go do something without your phone with you, go do something without all these like addictive things around you. And the more you can peel away at addictions, like little addictions, uh, the more you'll chip away at that big one, you know? That's a, that's a great yeah. point. Amen, you man. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. The, the phone is another addiction as well. I think I would love to see the percentage of, of, especially now kids now are, you know, younger than me, I'm 27. What? what the addiction rate is for the kids and technology because it's getting real bad. You don't see as many people playing outside like they used to. And that could be a whole other talk, you know what I mean? So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. So, Chris, man, I just want to – I really want to thank you, man, for coming on the show and, and sharing your knowledge of, you know, life in general and your, your own experience and your recovery. And congrats, man, on the six years and how many people you've helped, uh, including myself and, and my father. So I just want to thank you, Chris. Yeah, I just want to say to everybody, you know, just – um like I said, just be strong, you know, like in your sobriety and, and do it for you. Don't, you're not doing it for anybody else. You're doing it for you. And just make sure that you're living by your own code and that you're being honest with yourself. Yes, honestly. Uh, Frank, Frank, I always say, you know, the truth will set you free. And, and Frank means uh, honest, so I got to be honest. So, okay. Yeah, you got to uh, be Frank. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Before we wrap up, few more personal questions real quick to let you let the listeners know who you are a little more what is this is going to be a fun one what's your favorite movie 
Well, my favorite movie of all time is Rocky. 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 And then, um, what, stylistically, probably my one of my favorite movies is Fight Club. I just love the way that was like shot and the way like it's just awesome. And then I love like all of Quentin Tarantino's work. So, mm. you know, his eight films are like probably in my top ten. You know, so yeah. um, you know, I don't know. I, I just I dig I dig what he does because he just does his own thing. And every time he does his own thing, it's got its own stamp on it. It just says, like, this is a Quentin Tarantino movie. And I remember when I went to film school, the one thing that my teachers always said about me is, like, every one of your movies has a stamp on it. We know it's a Chris Bell movie. And so I think that same way about Quentin Tarantino, not trying to compare myself to him. But he's a lot better than I am at what he does. But um, I I like that. You know, I like I like that you just do what you want to do. Like people try to pitch me projects all the time. And I'm like, no, no, I, I don't want to do your project. I only want to do my own project. <laughs> and they're like, but I don't understand. You make movies. I'm like, yeah, but I don't make your movies. I make my, make movies. my movies. You know, yeah. that's all I'm interested in. You know? What, um, what is your, if you had one food, one meal to eat for the rest of your life, you probably know what it is. One meal for the rest of your life every day. What would it be? Well, it's steak. I have a steak yeah. <laughs> for me right now. <laughs> I have a steak all cooked up waiting for me right now, so ready to go. I do that one. One and you you already you've answered all these questions, which is funny. If you could if you could eat one food and not get fat, I would say ice cream. Like they <laughs> haven't invented there's a couple of like keto ice creams out there, but man, did they have a ton of crap in them. You know? Halo they they still haven't yeah. still haven't perfected that yet. Have you ever had the Halo Top? I don't like Halo Top that much. I, I like Rebel ice cream, I think is probably the best one out of the keto ones. I don't like Halo Top because I don't like the fat. It's it's lower in calories. I get that, and so it's that's okay fat, if that though. fits in your if if that fits in your diet and you like it. I'd say that's okay because it's lower in calories. Rebel Creamery actually tastes more like ice cream though, and has like higher fat and is more in line with the keto diet. But they use a lot of um, there's a lot of sugar alcohols in it, and I I don't like that sort of anti sugar alcohol, you know, because gotcha. it can mess up your stomach. Yeah, yeah, I have to, ch- I have to check, I have to check into that one. Yeah, because I have colitis. And I was going to say, I just started a papaya pills first, and I don't know if you ever heard of those, but uh, that's actually worked wonders for me. After each meal, I feel a lot less bloating and everything. Yeah, a lot of people take those for just digestion to yeah. help you. One, and I think I know what you're going to say with this one too is, per, one person to meet, dead or alive, though, Chris. Dead or alive? Well, I wouldn't want to meet anybody that's dead, really. Um. <laughs> The, I don't know. You know, it's like, uh, I, I think like if I could actually hang out with somebody, it'd be Eminem. Yeah. Cause I just yeah. think like he's on a different level, you know, of just creativity. And like, if I could, if I could like work with anybody on something, it would be Eminem and it would be something about answer. addiction and recovery. And I think, honestly, I think I, um, just so this is actually hit the nail on the head here at the end, Eminem, um, from what I heard, the way that, because I was wondering, like, man, he was the worst drug addict ever. How did he get sober? And I heard, and I don't know if this is true, I haven't confirmed it, but I heard this a couple times that he did Ibogaine to get sober. So I'm trying to look into that and see if that, if he really did. Because if he really did, then I need to talk to him. Yeah, for you sure. Have a conversation. Because I think by Eminem that. saying, like, if Eminem ever came out and said that he did Ibogaine, it would just blow that thing. It would just, you know, sort of blow it to the moon. Yeah. Basically every, everybody be like, wait a second. Like that. It's almost like, honestly, Ibogaine is almost like cheating. It's almost like cheating on rehab. You know, like, like I didn't go to rehab, but all this happened 
in 36 hours and stuff. You know, it's like 90 meetings in 90 days. Well, 90 days is that's really hard to do. Yeah. But if you it can is. do it, if you can do it in 36, 36 hours, hours yeah. that's kind of amazing. You know. Yeah, that could open up a whole nother ball game, a whole nother. Yeah. Well, I look. I just think like, why make it hard? Like, if if you could do, if you could do, say you could, say we find that you could microdose ibogaine and not have to go through some crazy 36 hour thing, but say you take it for six weeks microdosing and we find out that, it, that it's just as effective because we do some studies, right? And if we find something like that's just a, as effective, why not have people do outpatient treatment on something like a microdose for like a while? And then, and then once they're at a certain point, then you bring them in and you do regular rehab with them to do, because I do still think that after somebody does ibogaine, they need aftercare. Like they need, like after they do ibogaine, they either need AA or they need someone to guide them to keep them away from drugs and alcohol so they don't go back to their old habits. Now, you're not going to want to go back to your old habits, but it's not automatic. You know what I mean? If you still go down the same streets and you still go down, you're going to buy the same drugs after a while. So you have to, you have to do something after it, just like, you know, it just makes it easier in that initial pulling away. Cause you know, the hardest part of sobriety is like the first 10, 15 days. That's the hardest part. You people know? play people places for the things. You yeah. said it. One one time frame to go, Chris. If you had a time machine, if I said here you go, Chris, here's a time machine. Where would you go and why? Any any time in the history. Man, probably like, I want to see what the hell happened in Egypt. Like I need to know. I, <laughs> I, I listen to too much. I listen to too much Joe Rogan, but I, I need to know. <laughs> Like, I don't know. He was talking about the Sphinx the other day and all these things. And I was like, I was like, man, like what, how, like, how did that get built? How did that, come how about? Did that yeah. stuff happen? To me, that's the most fascinating of anything because like we, so we don't think we had technology, but did we, you know what I mean? Yeah, did yeah. we have technology? Did, did the world reset? Cause they said that um, the Sphinx has been covered with sand several times. So it's been covered with sand and then like Napoleon found it most recently and like uncovered it. So like where, like how was that thing buried in sand? Like that must've taken thousands of years to bury that thing in sand, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. That's probably the most fascinating to me is back in those times. Yeah. Like how did they actually build these huge pyramids? Well, how did they build them? And how was was there, there was, and, and there was so much prosperity in like, in like the middle of Africa. That's crazy. Yeah. Like what happened? Like why is it why is it not prosperous now? Like that, you know? Like that's it's really interesting. It makes you think all that um yeah, it just makes you think about like what what happened. And that you know, like did it just start over? <laughs> I wish I had that answer because it would be uh very interesting to go back to go. that and figure it out. But um it's kinda like you said people think there's two sides to every coin heads and tails but there's always that in between the heads and the tails but really what is that you know what i mean so that's uh exactly. that's a good way to look at it and then last chris one workout movement you had to do one for the rest of your life what would it be i think uh probably the best movement for um to- total like overall body is going to either be um a trap bar deadlift which is very safe so i use um i use uh, we have the Trap Bar HD, which is a Kabuki Strength Lab Bar. I use that one. So it's really good. It's really comfortable and it's really nice. It's got two handles. It's got like high handles and low handles. So yeah. you can do. I'd say that Kabuki Trap Bar would be number one, 
And if it was a number two movement, I would say like a, a squat, you know, and I also use a, so like I have, I have a, I had a torn rotator cuff. It's not really torn anymore, but because I had a torn rotator cuff, I also use a specialty bar called a duffalo bar, which is like a curved bar, which really helps your shoulders. So I think like a squat with that duffalo bar, like a, a box squat yeah. is probably one of the best uh, exercises. Um, because I, I do box squats because I have a lot of pain and they just feel better, Yeah. but I don't even know. Cause I haven't really lifted yet. Not in pain. I only lifted, I lifted one day after Ibogaine and that one day I think I deadlifted, um, like I went in just to test it out. I did 405 for 10 and it, was, it felt so easy yeah. and it felt so light on squats. So I, I feel like, um, I feel like a squat and a deadlift would be the best thing overall. Like if you only had to, if you could only do one thing, that's going to build the most muscle. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that hex bar is actually no, that grip, Chris, is no joke. That, that for me, I think that grip is pretty, uh, it's different than a regular hex bar, that's for sure. And yeah. uh, and a lot of people don't remember like how much the hex bar and the box squat is building explosiveness, and it's so much in my mind and experience, so much safer on the back. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm and you're almost you're basically getting the same results, especially it's very hard to master the deadlift form with a straight bar. So, well, Chris, thank you, man, for uh, coming on the show. I yeah, really, thank you guys, man. I, I you, really bro. enjoyed talking to you guys. Appreciate I, I really you, appreciate it. Um, Again, everyone, my name is Frank. I'm a police officer in New York. You know where to find me. Reps underscore four underscore responders. Jay, where can they find you at, man? Uh, they can find me on Instagram, the real Jumpman Jay, spells as it sounds. And Chris, where can they find you at? I know you said it before. At, at Big Strong Fast on Instagram is probably the best place to find me. And, hey, man, thank you for all your hard work, and thanks for all the stuff you're doing for the first responders. That's really important right now at this time. And that's the number one reason why I wanted to do your podcast is just because I think you're a great guy and I think what you're doing is awesome and I just want you to continue to do it. And I just wanted to encourage you to do it. So hopefully me coming on here helps you, helps you to just keep going, keep cranking out and helping people. It's a beautiful Thanks, thing, Chris, Frank. I really appreciate the kind words, man. And uh, just for today, right, man? One day at a time. And one day at a time, brother. All right, man. All right, man. Good, man. God bless. Enjoy that steak. Take care, Big J. Have I'll a good one, brother. Later. All right. Take care. Have a good one. Let's see if I can hang up now. <laughs>